Let us pray that we might receive God's holy word. Speak to us, Lord, in the waiting, the watching, the hoping, the longing, the sorrow, the sighing, the rejoicing. Speak to us by your word in these Advent days and walk with us until the day of your coming. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading this morning comes from the book of 2 Samuel chapter 11 from 1 to 5 and 14 to 17, the word of a Lord. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house, and the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Rena. Thanksgiving is over. Christmas is in two weeks. Have you finished your shopping? Are you weary yet? Are you tired? Uh, some of you have been tired for decades, not with a physical tiredness, but an emotional tiredness. And this is a time of the year where, for a lot of us, it starts to, to sink in. The days are as short as they're going to get. Um, you know, the, it, the sun is setting at like 4.15, and if you live on a street with big buildings around you, then it can set at like 3.15 because you're in a canyon. And... Uh, Seasonal affective disorder hits this time of year. You know, family gatherings where you're noticing who's not there this year. When you're missing people who you used to know and they're no longer with us. When you think through uh, the abuse of this life and the mistreatment and all the sorrows that we live in one lifetime. It's like a, 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 a perfect storm of sorrow and despair and busyness and darkness and extended family all together at the same time of the year, we're going to talk some about a passage that speaks a little bit into that world of weariness in which we all live at some point in our lives. We're looking 
today actually at the genealogy of Jesus, even though it's the framework for all of our Advent lessons this year, we're looking at the mothers of Jesus, at the women who are are very noticeable in the genealogy of Jesus because genealogies in in the Jewish world were only men. It was so-and-so begat so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, who was the father of so-and-so, and yet there are five women who pop up in Jesus' genealogy. And it speaks something to the nature of the gospel, what it's for, and how it speaks into the lives of those of us who are weary. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 1, the first six verses, and then verses 12 through 17. Uh, It sounds boring, but this is one of the most exciting passages in the Bible. So follow along as I read. A record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadad, Aminadad the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz whose mother was Rahab. Boaz the father of Obed whose mother was Ruth. Obed the father of Jesse and Jesse the father of King David. And in verse 12, after the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah, the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel, the father of Zeriababel, Zeriababel, the father of Abiud, Abiud, the father of Eliakim, Eliakim, the father of Azor, Azor, the father of Zadok, Zadok, the father of Akim, Akim, the father of Eliud, Eliud, the father of Eliezer, Eliezer, the father of Matan, Matan, the father of Jacob, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Thus, there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Christ. This is God's gospel. Let his name be praised. There are some questions I want to ask this morning about this genealogy of Jesus, this fascinating genealogy. First of all, for whom was it meant? Because once you know the original intended audience, that is the key to unlocking its significance to them and through that, its significance to us. This was written to Jewish Christians. We know that for a dozen different reasons. You know, the, the Hebrew place names, the details, the, 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 the Jesus speaking into various, you know, rabbinic debates between the school of Shammai and the school of Hillel about divorce, all these things that were only significant to a Jewish audience. He's writing to really Palestinian Jews. And I want you to consider their cultural background because this, this, this gospel, according to Matthew, would have dropped like a bombshell into the world of Palestinian Judaism because Palestinian Judaism was in the midst of a massive culture war between two different factions. On the one hand, were the kind of Hellenizing Greco-Jews who, who adopted Jewish clothing and Jewish, uh, or adopted Greek Greek language and, and Greek names and, and, and Greek culture. And then on the other hand, the big pushback from what was kind of the religious right wing of Judaism. Uh, you know, let me give you some stories here. First of all, um, 
Jerusalem itself and, and, and Palestine in the first century was increasingly pagan. It was increasingly Greek, uh, as Greek as it was Jewish. When Herod rebuilt the temple of the Lord in Jerusalem, he built it uh, and, and, and had it designed according to Greek architectural styles. Uh, attached to Herod's temple was a massive Roman fortress filled with Roman you know, centurions who could come to quash any kind of uh, Jewish uprising. Roman Palestine was filled with pagan temples. The place was filled with Greek theaters and Greek gymnasia where secularized Jews would engage in Greek sport wearing Greek athletic uniforms, which meant maybe sandals. Only sandals. You know, Jewish boys grappling one another without any clothes on in a semi-public. It was scandalous. You think we can do scandals here, folks? First century Palestine was filled with scandals. You know, you got Jews switching their names from Hebrew to Greek names. Joshua going as Jason because it's more culturally suave and debonair. You know, you got four gospels that were written, you know, all in Greek, none in Hebrew or Aramaic. The laws of Moses were not enforced in first century Palestine. There's no record of Jewish Sabbath years or Sabbath, uh, 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 you know, or even this, the year of Jubilee ever being actually, you know, engaged with and obeyed in Roman Palestine. Herod, the Jewish king, built Sebast and other pagan cities in Palestine because he wanted to appeal to the country's substantial and growing pagan population. In, in Beit She'an and Banias stood altars to, to Greek gods Dionysius or, or Serapis. Herod, when he rebuilt the temple of the Lord, at the entrance to the temple precincts, he put a giant gilded Roman eagle to declare the real power of Rome, even in the holy precincts of the temple of the God of the Jews. Yeah, he rebuilt the temple of the Lord, but uh, he also built temples to Apollo in Rhodes. And Herod built additional pagan temples in Palestine, including a temple to the emperor of Rome to worship him in Samaria, as well as constructing another temple to Caesar Augustus in Caesarea and yet another in Panias. You know, against this backdrop of a culture war, there then arose the Jewish resistance, those who were not going to compromise, those who would not bow the knee to Rome, those who would not bow their hearts to Greek culture and Greek style and Greek literature, those who wanted Jew Judaism for Jews. They were known as the Pharisees. There were about 6,000 of them in the first century, um, but they were incredibly influential beyond their numbers. The name comes from the Hebrew word parush, meaning separated. They were the leaders in the religious crusade against pagan infiltration in the Holy Land. They were the people trying to take Roman Palestine back for God. Among the sayings of the Pharisees were these, do not eat with a Gentile, not even to bring him the law. And this from a group of people who really liked bringing the law to people, but they would not eat with sinners, not with Gentiles, not with the unclean. They were also very... Uh, negative in their attitudes towards women. A pharisaical saying was that it's better to teach a dog than a woman. And a dog was an unclean animal in ancient Judea, Jewish law. To, to touch a, a tax collector would make a house ceremonially unclean. The Pharisees prohibited eye contact with pagan idols or statues because seeing them would make you unclean. There was extreme effort to avoid sinful people and tax collectors and women. 
according to the Mishnah and the Talmud, uh, uh, recorded later, a Jew who collected taxes was disqualified as a judge or witness in court and expelled from the synagogue because it was Roman taxes that were being collected. He therefore became a curse and a disgrace to his family. In carrying out their moral crusade, their culture war, the Pharisees brought renewed focus on the Bible, particularly on the laws and the rules and the commandments of the Hebrew Bible. And they sought to build a fence around them by avoiding sinful people and sinful situations altogether. They wanted to return to righteousness, a righteousness that they saw in their sacred Jewish history, a history of a godly people who sought the Lord, obeyed the Lord, lived according to his standards. They were against the moral laxity and corrupt pagan infiltrations they saw all around them. They wanted honor and not shame. They wanted righteousness, not immorality. They wanted supremacy of the Bible over the laws of pagan Rome. They were bitterly opposed to anyone and everyone that they saw as an enemy in their culture war. They were opposed to immoral people. They were opposed to tax collectors. They were opposed to harlots. They were opposed to foreigners who came with different religious beliefs and different cultural backgrounds and eating styles and clothing styles. Gentile were offensive to them. Just, you know, they, they were against sexual sinners and, and rule breakers. They wanted to recreate the godliness of, of King David and his court and bring back God's ways. It was a culture war. Does it sound familiar? A devoted religious minority seeking to bring an increasingly pagan culture back to God by using every human means at their disposal a culture war between people who believed the Bible and those that they viewed as sinners. That was the context in which Jesus was born. Indeed, religious Jewish Christian readers in that first century readers of Matthew's gospel, would many of them have come from that exact context. They likely would have been culture warriors on some level themselves. So for whom was this written? Conservative Jewish Christians coming out of a culture war. Second question, so what would they have found so shocking about this genealogy of Jesus? Well, what would have been so shocking are not any of the male names, but all of the female names and the implied female name that's not actually named that we're going to talk about today. You have, for example, in verse 5, Jesus was descended from Ruth. She was a great, 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 great grandmother, one of the brothers of Jesus. She was also a Gentile. She was not a Jew, not by birth. Sam talked about her last week. She, she suffered horribly. But she was a Moabites. She was from an unclean people. Jesus' genealogy is tainted with Gentile blood. And then you also have Tamar in verse 3. There are two Tamars in the Hebrew Scriptures. This one was a deceiver. She was guilty of incest. She pretended to be a harlot. We're going to talk about her uh, next week and tell her fuller story because there's a lot more to that picture. But to a conservative Jew in the first century, this would have not been a heroic figure for a genealogy. Remember, audience, culture warriors. We'll talk more about her story next week. And then there's Rahab in verse 5. She didn't pretend to be a harlot. She was one. It's what she did for a living. She lived in an in a inherently sinful, irredeemable lifestyle. Uh, uh, it, and she was Jesus' great, 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 great grandma. 
Jesus is the only human being in history as the eternal son of God who got to choose his family of origin. He was the only one who got to decide who his peeps would be. He's the only one who got to look through billions of people in human history and pick his team and pick his family and say, these are the people I want in my family line. Prostitutes, incestuous people, Gentiles, sinners, And they're called out specifically. You don't mention the women. Matthew is making a point that Jesus did this on purpose. On purpose. Otherwise, they would just be glossed over. You don't have to mention them. These women are all on the wrong side of their culture war. This is an incredibly inappropriate list of ancestors. It's scandalous. And it's pointing out that maybe our great Jewish past wasn't so holy and righteous after all. And then there's that other name, the one I skipped. I skipped her name because Matthew skips her name. He lists her by the name of her husband. Did you pick up on that one? Did you pick up on the mother of Jesus that's not named in verse 6? Matthew lists her as Uriah's wife with whom David had a kid. Not David's wife. We know her by the name of Bathsheba. What do we know about her? Uh, you know, Rena read from Second Samuel chapter 11. David is on the roof of his palace high up above the city. One in the morning, one night, he looks down. He sees in a courtyard this woman who's washing. He finds out who she is. He tells her guards to go get her and bring her to me. They bring her to her. He gets her pregnant. He sends her away. Uh, then uh, she finds out she's pregnant with the king's kid, and uh, there's a cover-up, and the cover-up doesn't succeed, so David kills her husband and takes her as one of his own wives. And then the child dies, and then she has another child who becomes Solomon, who becomes the next king following David. And the author of Samuel focuses his account really on David's evil actions, and we have very few details about Bathsheba, but the few that we have are telling. In her Tyndale commentary, uh, the late theologian and biblical scholar Joyce Baldwin describes the awkwardness of reading the biblical account of David and Bathsheba. There are so many unanswered questions surrounding this narrative. She says it this way. She says, every sensitive reader must wonder what the whole episode looked like from the point of view of Bathsheba. She was the victim of David's lust but the narrator deliberately omits her feelings from consideration in order to concentrate on David. Nevertheless, she suffered much, losing her integrity, bearing someone else's illegitimate child, losing her husband, and then losing her own child. All the ingredients for a drama are here and invite our exploration, but the biblical narrator resisted any invitation to sidetrack. So let's look at the details of the biblical account. See if we can figure out the nature of their relationship. We see and observe certain things. First, when David sees Bathsheba uh, washing, David sends a messenger to find out who she is. The messenger who's not named returns and responds by connecting Bathsheba to the social and cultural relationships within which she lived in community. We learn that she is a daughter a daughter of one of David's most faithful and loyal friends and supporters. 
We learn also that she is a wife, a wife of one of David's most loyal and faithful warriors who at that moment is on the field of battle defending David and risking his life for David. We find out that she's, yes, a daughter of someone. She is a wife of someone. Uriah the Hittite was one of David's mighty men, the elite force of troops that defended him, led his troops in battle, who when David was under attack and had to flee Jerusalem, he would have been one of the men who came to him and stood by him to defend him in his hour of need. And unlike David, who repeatedly is defined by his accomplishments on the one hand and his failures on the other, Bathsheba is defined by her interconnectedness, her family, her community, the people who knew her and loved her. Bathsheba is a human being living in community and deeply loved within that community. She is not an object to be possessed or to be taken as David does, but rather a woman and a member of God's new community, Israel, God's family. And the king sends for her at a time when her husband is away. Men from the palace go, they fetch her, they bring her to the king, and Bathsheba conceives a child. So back to that question, what is the nature of the relationship? Did Bathsheba have a romantic liaison with King David, or was she rather a victim of assault, or rather worse? And not all biblical scholars agree on this point. But there is nothing in the biblical account to suggest that this was a romantic affair between two willing lovers. This was not the story of Anthony and Cleopatra. This was not Romeo and Juliet. This was not Tristan and Isut. There is nothing to suggest that this was Scarlett O'Hara and Rhett Butler. Notice the details. The text of Samuel draws particular attention to David's wandering about on his roof after midnight. It says it twice to the fact that he's on his roof. Now, that's a significant factor if if we're not only given that detail, but given it twice for emphasis. Why would David have been on his roof at one in the morning? Well, it's possible he had insomnia. It's possible he had restless leg syndrome. We don't know, but the fact that it's mentioned twice says we're supposed to surmise some things from it. For example, David's palace would have been much taller than all of the surrounding houses. Houses were built around private courtyards. Private courtyards were the place where no one could see in your house. It's the place where a woman might, for example, clean herself or bathe. And it was a private place. You couldn't see inside their courtyard unless you happened to be in the one place where you could see inside other people's private spaces, which would be the top of the royal palace. Uh, I had a friend who used to live in a high-rise downtown. And I remember him commenting on move-out day. Whenever somebody was moving out of their high-rise apartment surrounded by other high-rise apartments and hotel rooms. And how it was interesting because so many people in downtown St. Louis own telescopes. There's always a telescope in the elevator on the way down. And it's funny because in downtown St. Louis, there is so much light pollution, you cannot see the stars at night. Even on a clear night, you look up, all you see is bright blue. Why would they have telescopes, all of these men in these high rises in downtown St. Louis? I don't know. But if the author of 2 Samuel were writing it, he would mention it twice. And the fact that he's on his roof also speaks to something else. The the narrator is, is pointing out that David is on top of everyone else. He is above everyone else. He is the king. He is used to getting his way. Everyone else is his subject. He is the top of the totem pole. He is the, you know, he, he is the candle on top of the cake. 
He is the boss, and everybody else is beneath him. He is the roof of you know, Jewish society. And he is obligated as king to protect his subjects, those who are beneath him. Now, you might ask, well, isn't Bathsheba tempting David by taking a bath outside? Well, it's a fair question. Um, the account does not say that she was on the rooftop, though that also would be a private walled space visible only from the top of the palace. It simply says that he saw her. Um, Bathsheba's washing herself in the middle of the night uh, would have been a perfectly proper action within a private space. Uh, you know, there's no indication even that she was naked. Uh, it just says that she was cleaning herself from her monthly menstrual flow, that it was her ceremonial washing. And so that detail is actually drawing attention to the fact that Bathsheba is very, very committed to obeying the details of the law of Moses. She is a, a rule keeper. She is being faithful to God's word. Even the details of, of the Hebrew code that after that time of the month, she would ceremonially wash herself. And she's doing it in her own private space in the middle of the night when no one should be watching. And it draws attention to her righteousness and her character as a heart that is sensitive to God and sensitive to God's law. It also draws attention to the fact that she was absolutely in no way pregnant when she went into that palace under guard. Nothing in the biblical account suggests that she was playing the part of temptress. The author's emphasis David's location on the roof, he mentions it twice, suggests that he might have been up to no good. It suggests that this was an abuse of power because he was pledged to protect the wives and daughters of his loyal servants because he was the king of the people of God. So what was the nature of the relationship? On the one hand, there is a different terminology that would be used if this was a forcible assault. It's the language that's used two chapters later in 2 Samuel to describe a different incident. But there's yet different language that would be used if this was a mutual romantic affair. And it wasn't that. So what was it? It wasn't a romantic affair. What was the nature? And we can put together the clues laid out in the details of the text. David was spying on her from his roof. He was in a position of incredible power over her. her. The men who would have protected her were off at battle. She was alone. The focus is on her faithfulness in her cleansing rituals following the Old Testament law. David is sending people to get her like one takes a, a parcel or an inanimate object and doing so when, when, when everybody else is, is gone. Her going home afterward only communicating with David after she realizes she's carrying the king's child. The fact that the biblical account consistently names David and David alone as the guilty party suggests something to us. In 21st century Western terminology, we would describe this as an instance of sexual misconduct and an abuse of power against a subordinate that may not have been wanted and may not have been consensual. Could Bathsheba has, have refused? Legally, yes, she could. But for any woman whose husband was away at war, being brought by palace guards into the royal palace, it's not clear the degree to which any woman in the ancient world could have resisted the advances of Israel's powerful king. Certainly the Hebrew text of the account 
paints Bathsheba and her husband Uriah as victims of an aggression by David, who is the guilty party. And Matthew draws all of this out in his genealogy when he names Bathsheba within the genealogy, not by calling her Bathsheba, but by calling her Uriah's wife. We think, oh, that's so insensitive not to use her name. Why didn't he use her name? Is she not that important as a person in her own right? No, 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 no. He's, that's our thinking in the 21st century West. They're thinking that they would have much rather she be called Bathsheba. But because he called her Uriah's wife, it points to the nature of the relationship that she was stolen and her husband murdered by the best-looking guy in this genealogy. These Jewish culture warriors in the first century would have seen David and they would have thought, this is the best guy possible. This is who you want Jesus to be descended from. He is not only the king of the Jews, he is the beginning of the line who received the promise. He is the man after God's own heart. He is the greatest king in the history of the world, the king of the Jews, the, the one who's, who Jesus is descended from. They would have said, this is great. And then immediately in the very next breath, he stole Uriah's wife. Pointing out that the big shameful sinner wasn't Bathsheba. The big shameful sinner would have been David. It was a slap in the face to a king who was simultaneously, yes, a man after God's own heart and also a predator. To point out the fact that David stole another man's wife to do so in the genealogy of the Messiah, who is the son of God, is to highlight both Bathsheba's relative innocence as a victim and David's deeply sinful condition as one who, though he was king, he needed a savior too. Bathsheba was an abuse victim. She was a survivor. What does it mean that she's listed here? And it means this. It means... That Jesus is the God of the abuse survivor. Jesus is the only human being in history who could choose his ancestors, chose a woman who today is known primarily by the abuse that she suffered. As God, Jesus could pick his ancestors. And in advance, he's saying Bathsheba. He's drawing attention to the fact that God the God of Israel identifies with the victims of harassment and the victims of assault. Jesus is the God of the victimized, the God of the manhandled, the groped, the abused, the violated. He is a God who stands with the victimized. He is a God who is proud to name Bathsheba among his mothers. It's the gospel for the victim. And to a conservative Jew reading this in the first century, this would have been so shocking, even if they were not complicit themselves, just being a victim of this kind of assault would have been seen as a state of great shame to the reader. It was an honor-based society. And Jesus, seeing her honor taken from her, then turns around and puts her in the place of greatest honor by making her the mother of a king and through his incarnation, the mother of Jesus, which means a mother of God. This is the kind of God we serve. This is who Jesus picks for his team. This is who he wants as his family. Jesus is proud to say that Bathsheba is a mother to him. A great, 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 great grandmother. And David murdered her husband. He took pregnant Bathsheba as one of his wives. And it was through Bathsheba and not one of his earlier wives that King Solomon would be born. Bathsheba would then become a queen mother. She would give birth to a king. 
and through that king would become the mother of the king of kings himself. This is a God who redeems injustice, who takes up advocacy for the victim and hears her cry. This is a God who takes the stories of the weak and the shamed and he uses them to save the world. And here, Matthew points us even beyond David, beyond Bathsheba, he's pointing us to Jesus who is a friend of them both, a friend of King David and a friend of Bathsheba. He is the God of David, the God of the sinner, even the sinner who's left a string of victims in his wake. God loves David enough to bring him to repentance Through Nathan, the prophet, God would show David that exactly what it was that he had done and God would utterly break David's heart. David would be disciplined by God, his father. And God would create in David a clean heart. And he did it because God is a God who loves sinners. God is a God who loves the victimizer. God is a God who loves and redeems even abusers who will turn their heart to him. And God is a God of the marginalized a God of the abused, and a God of the survivor. Where did Jesus choose to come from? A bunch of immoral sinners and murderers and filthy, shameful, wicked people who are loved by God and from people who have been bruised and broken and beaten down and beaten up, the victims, the weak, the poor, and the marginalized. That's who Jesus chose to come from. That's who he made his family. That's who he chose as his friends because that's who he came to save. We see something more within the structure of this genealogy. We see Jesus as the one who brings rest. He brings rest to wounded souls. Souls like David. Souls like Bathsheba. He's the one who brings the rest. You look at that ending of the genealogy about the 14 generations of the 14 generations of the 14 generations. That doesn't mean much to a bunch of of Americans and others in the 21st century, but to a Jew in the first century, and this was again written to a Jewish audience, that would have meant the world. Because you have seven and seven and then seven and then seven and then seven and then seven. And in the world of Hebrew numerology, this was incredibly significant What's the point? Jesus becomes the seventh seven, 14, 14, 14. Six sevens and then Jesus. Jesus, remember God created the world in six days and on the seventh he did what? He rested. And then in the Hebrew law, there were weeks of years where you'd go seven years and and after six years of tilling your soil, the seventh year you wouldn't plant. You would let the land do what? The land would rest. And then you'd get seven of those sets of seven years. And after seven sets of seven years, after the 49th year, the last year, the 50th year, was the year of Jubilee. The year of Jubilee in which debts would be forgiven and prisoners would go free and all the jails and all the prisons would be empty and all the poor people would get their ancestral land back, their means of production back, and everything would be made right and the people and the land would all rest and celebrate. And here you have seven years and 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 seven years. years. Fourteen generations, fourteen generations, fourteen generations, and then Jesus making the point 
that Jesus is the year of Jubilee. Jesus is your Sabbath rest. Jesus is the one who sets prisoners free. Jesus is the one in whom all sins are forgiven, all debts are paid, and everybody finds restoration in this life and in the age to come. That's the message that Jesus is our Sabbath rest. Jesus is the year of Jubilee. If your soul is weary, if your soul is tired, if you're worn out and you want to give up, Jesus is speaking, saying, come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Jesus came into this damaged world of abuse and neglect in order to rescue it. And he did it, friends, at the cost of his own life. That baby born at Christmas was born to die at Good Friday and be and and. and be raised from the dead on Easter Sunday. He gave his life willingly. That was his purpose. That was his mission that he set his face toward Jerusalem so that he could die. So that he could, having lived the life I should have lived, he could die the death I should have died to save sinners like me, to save sinners like you. It's the love of God for the bruised and the broken, the shameful and the rejected, the sinners like us. Strong and weak alike, Jesus died for us in order to be our Sabbath rest. October 2nd of the year 2006 was a dark day for the Amish community of Nickel Mines, Pennsylvania. Many of you remember the day. It was that morning that a local milkman named Charles Carl Roberts backed his pickup truck to the front door of the West Nickel Mines Amish School. Having scoped out the place earlier in the day, he brought in three guns, knives, and over 600 rounds of ammunition. He let the teacher and the women with babies leave. He sent all of the boys packing. He kept only the girls hostage inside the schoolhouse. And those Amish girls could recognize his intent. He had left four suicide notes scattered around different sites, and he talked openly about his plan that none of them, no one else, was going to escape. And on realizing their fate was certain death, the oldest of the girls, 13-year-old Marie Fisher, stood up, her hair covered, her dress flowing. She stood up and she walked, her, her clogs making you know, noise as they fell upon the wood floor. And she looked into this man's eyes and she said this. She said, shoot me first and let my sisters go free. And he was speechless. He asked her to pray for her. And because she sacrificed her own life, five of her fellow sisters, five of her fellow students were able to leave that school alive. A 13-year-old young woman from an Amish background, where did she learn that? She learned it from Jesus, her Savior, because that's what Jesus did for her, and that's what Jesus did for me, and that's what Jesus did for you. This is the baby who comes at Christmas, who comes to die for your sake, so that you can live in his place. Let's pray.
Oh, our Father and our God, we do give you thanks for your faithful love to us because you have given us Jesus. You have given us a Savior. To unto us, a Savior is born who is Christ the Lord. Father, we consecrate to you the elements on this table, this bread and this cup, that you might preach the good news to us, Lord, that we would be transformed by your good news, transformed by the gospel of Jesus who loves the victim and who breaks and has compassion on even the victimizer. We thank you, Lord, for the incredible, amazing grace we have in him. Amen.